So, so that's it, Graham. That's that's the thing. I feel like at some point we're going to have to start talking about the Fantastic Four. So, uh, do we? Guards, <laughs> Jeff. Guard. Guard. I kind of love guard. I really. Do. I have to tell you, I had a. a like you have had a weird week right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i started to read these issues on monday because i was like i'm going to start early mm-hmm. and i'm going to you know read few issues a day mm-hmm. and everything will be fine and the, like by the time i got to guard i was like if this wasn't my kindle i'd be throwing this across the room in disgust <laughs> like, what, what the fuck is this Hello, whatnots. Welcome to the Baxter Building. I've added a definitive article, Jeff. I hope that's okay. The Baxter Building, episode 19. Uh, I am one of your hosts. My name is Graham McMillan. Hello. Uh, and the Jeff on the other end of the line is... Is somewhat... I'm not sure how I feel about the throwing the article in there. It's, I like, have to say, I, even after I did it, I was like, this might be a mistake. Well, because I don't know. Because there was a little bit... Uh, for me, the half the fun of, of Baxter Building is, is the... pun. Is the pun? Yeah, exactly. Is is the idea that we're watching these people build the Fantastic Four? So it makes sense that you're sort of switching to the Baxter Building because I, it was purely the product of a stressed mind, Jeff. Oh I, no, I, no, 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 no! But I take too too uh, seriously. But but I also think there is there that is kind of our little uh, into these issues because we're we're covering issues one sixty through one seventy of the Fantastic Four and let me stop you there. Yes. What is your name? Oh, did you not get to my name? Did you? No, I thought you, for some reason you were you supposed to do me. my name. Oh God, no wonder why I'm like blah blah blah. I could have sworn you said Jeff Lester and yeah. I, I, said, I said Jeff. Oh, and you were supposed to go Jeff Lester because I said my ghost is. No, I don't. I th- you said Jeff. I'm like I don't know where I'm supposed to go with that. So you know, yeah. Hello, everyone. I am the ever easily baffled Jeff Lester. Uh, ready <laughs> we're to doing discuss well. Fantastic Four issues with you? Yes. Uh, yeah. So we're doing issues 160 through 170, which you and I have said just before we started recording, and also in email. These are weird collection of issues. Yeah. Like genuinely are. Choose your own adventure in how much you like them. In that, as I just told you, I hated them on the first way through, and then actually really kind of liked them in the second. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, and and as for me, uh, I read almost. I think actually I might have been ten for ten on these. I'm not entirely sure. Actually, Wait, I take what, do you, it back. what do you mean? You, I, I mean that, that, that you liked ten for ten. That with the exception of issue one sixty seven, I read all of these issues. When approximately when they came out? Oh, like, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, it, you you have full on nostalgia for these issues? Yes, yeah. And so it's really hard to, and that's that's the thing that kind of weirded me out about this is is rereading these issues. And part of me had been saying like, oh, they're not so bad. They're not so bad. I'm looking forward to rereading them. And you know, I got to them. And, you know, we'll break it down by storyline, but essentially 
they all sucked in varying degrees and ways, and yet they are among the strongest issues of FF as comfort food. I think that that I I really we may have encountered. I mean, there's some Archie Goodwin stuff, of course, that we liked. You know me, I liked a few issues of the batshit Jerry Conway stuff. The Jerry Conway stuff, by and large, doesn't come together. And what's interesting in seeing, for me, issues 160 through 170, we've got a big mega epic. We've got a two-part storyline that feels as if it should be a one solitary fill-in issue. It's funny you say that because you obviously didn't read the letter column where they admitted that it was a giant size issue split in two. Oh, it's it's so funny that you interrupted me before I got to the end of my sentence so I could say that. <laughs> yeah. That's what specialized in. It did the last time, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's it seems to be they I'm fascinated by how much inventory issue stuff like Roy Thomas had cooking for the Fantastic Four that had to be like cut and parceled up, you know, I don't know if that was just him writing ahead of his deadline, you know, or, you know, the, the, the books, the giant size titles imploded like far more quickly than, you know, they had scheduled things out. But anyway, so we've got, we've got a fill in issue that is broken into two issues because it's basically a giant size issue. There's a two-part thing in Hulk story that is very odd. And then a big follow-up of larger continuity that, to me, is the set of stories that works the best. But it's hard for me to tell because I have such a weird, such a strong connection to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's a little bit of everything here, really. No, there really is. So <laughs> I don't have the same nostalgia for these issues at all. Right. This is the first time I've read... Well, it's not. I think I've read the Power Man issues before, but definitely not when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, relatively, I'm going to say since I got Marvel Unlimited, it's probably in the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have the nostalgia for these at all. But it really is, there's a lot here. There's a lot of flaws. Uh, you and I have talked before on previous episodes about how, especially Roy Thomas, who writes all these issues, mm-hmm. is a fan of the Fantastic Four being antagonistic towards each other for no reason whatsoever other than drama and holy shit that's what goes on in these stories in these 11 issues alone jeff the human torch quits the team twice Mm -hmm. twice Mm -hmm. for no reason other than basically you looked at me funny yeah and and the thing quits the team the thing turns against the team Right. You have a subplot about uh, Mr. Fantastic losing his powers, which disappears. Well, it, introduced. it comes. It comes back later. It's it's visually referenced in the later issues in a in a way that's very interesting and weird. So you have all these things that are theoretically like wrong, mm-hmm. but there's also an awful lot of stuff that's interesting, and good, and it's funny that you say. The, the last three-parter is something that you can't really judge fairly because you have such nostalgia. Because, as I said, I don't. And I think that is by far the most successful storyline of this oh, batch. Good. I think so as well. Yeah. Okay. That's fabulous. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, because it is, it's, it still has a lot of the same problems mm-hmm. b- by far. But it's also the one where it, it seems simultaneously the most classic FF. Mm-hmm. And also the one where you're not just shouting at the characters, stop being so fucking stupid. Yes. All the time. Mm-hmm. It, like, okay, let's just jump in. So so 160 through 163 is a four-part storyline. Yeah. This is the epic that Jeff was talking about. 160 is called In One World and Out the Other. 
161 is called All the World's Wars at Once. 162, The Shape of Things to Come. It's a good pun. You'll know why when we get there. Uh, and 163, Finale. <laughs> Spoilers, everyone. The simultaneously lamest and kind of awesomest Fantastic Four threat uh, to date is in the storyline. And I'm not talking about Archon. Mm-hmm. Do you want to summarize these issues? or yeah. Maybe not the issues, but the overall plot. Because I... summarizing the issues could take the entire podcast. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah, actually, it, it, what happens is Roy Thomas creates a kind of, the sort of thing that you would expect in a way from Roy Thomas in that uh, it starts, it it takes bits of pieces of different pieces of Marvel continuity and pulls them together. So 160 starts with a version of the thing that we're immediately sort of keyed into is not very much like the thing we know because he's wearing shirt and pants and has absolutely no bravado as Archon, the resident like barbarian on a big dragon with uh, lightning bolts, tries to take him out and manages to succeed, but not before Alicia Masters stumbles across the scene, literally, finds the thing, starts talking to him and realizes this is not someone that she actually knows. It's not Ben Grimm. Uh, Archon takes this thing, flashes off with him, uh, you know, zaps him away to Archon's dimension. uh, And this is sort of the first main part of the plot i guess uh of the of the issue as a result of it the thing goes off on his own with lockjaw and using lockjaw's sort of powers as a dimensional bloodhound gets him to take part of the rip shirt that alicia had gotten a hold of and tracks uh the shirt back to as we should have realized, and I hate to admit it, Graham, despite how much I love the issues, for whatever reason, I did not figure out that this was the Reed Richards thing that uh, Ben had encountered in that wonderful little uh, Archie Goodwin backup story from back in the early 120s, late 1-teens. Um, and it comes out that Archon has stolen the... Uh, has has kidnapped... Reed Richards thing, but also uh, has managed to more or less take all of the inventions that Reed Richards has uh, created and is using them to invade uh, Zemu, the fifth dimension that we were reintroduced to very recently back in the 150s. We say very recently, literally it was one... 58 and 159 wasn't yeah, it yeah like is it not literally the storyline before this i guess this? that's right yeah it was the storyline but was it the storyline before this or was it the story yeah i guess that's right because it was the the inhumans and yeah the fifth dimension people right so uh the the what we find out at the same time there's a subplot that ends up tying into the main plot where reed richards has once again in his genius way driven them all broke and has come up with the plan of selling fantastic four incorporated to a larger corporation so that they have money and as it turns out the interrelated techno technocracies technocracies of the reed richards thing planet the logo is very suspiciously like the interlocking technologies uh, logo that Reed 
of our Earth ends up selling the corporation to. So, I, I'm going to interrupt for a second and say that that's, that's the cliffhanger of 160, as you yeah. point out. And I love that cliffhanger. I do too. So the the when the Reed Richards thing shows up in quote-unquote our reality, mm-hmm. he is is talking about how no one can beat it. Mm-hmm. And the, the end That's of this right. issue mm-hmm. points out that it might not have been Archon at all. Mm-hmm. It might have been interlocking technologies or interrelated technocracies. Yes. That, which have the same logo and have now signed two different Reed Richards to mm-hmm. their cause. Right. Which so- I love. I love the... Because it's, it's a very clear, like, oh, there's more going on than meets the eye. Yes. But it's something really simultaneously subtle and blunt about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I, I really like? Yeah. Well, and I think that is the... What's rough for me is, is Roy Thomas at this point is in some sort of groove. And I say that very guardedly because all of these issues are really fun, but it's... And ambitious, and yet amazingly enough, managed to build piece by piece to so much less than some of their parts. It's true that this is actually as, as a as an epic. Mm-hmm. It it's a disaster. Like yeah. it it doesn't come together, but all the ingredients are there. All the ingredients are great. I mean, just at the end of it, if you think about it, you've got parallel Reed Richards, and you essentially have a multiverse spinning corporation. That is gobbling up IP. It's it's an awesome idea. It's incredibly relevant it's, now. It's, it's not. It's also they're not just gobbling up IP. They're gobbling up IP to then use against someone else. Yes, exactly. like they're they're getting the. And we're sort of jumping ahead to the the reveal later on. But it's the the inter interrelated slash interlocking technocracies slash technologies is. Buying the inventions of one world to use against another world to spur more inventions that they'll then use on another world. That's right. The, the The idea is essentially to have to by by spearheading the attacks on each planet. Uh, they're turning three worlds. Uh, Reed Richards alternate or the the. The planet, the Earth that we know, the Reed Richards, where uh, the planet where Reed Richards is the thing, and the fifth dimension world where people are blue and Joe Sinek can really draw the shit out of people's faces. Uh, each of them have, because they're being attacked by what they believe is another world, they reattack that planet, which itself does not know that, um, you know, it, it's essentially a dupe. And the whole idea is that Archon is going to destroy these three worlds uh, and drain all the energy, the dissipated energy, to revitalize his dimension, which is in the process of winding down and running out of energy. Sadly, yeah, I, I, there's, there's something like you're slightly wrong because they're not. Each world is invading the forward world in a loop. Yes. So they're not. Re- they're not retaliating with the right world. Well, uh, what they're all ha- being duped into thinking that they're e- attacking each other's worlds. Uh, you know, the the thing is, is I want to say there's that crazy. Once again, there's also a weird thing here. If you if you look at issue one sixty two, I think it's page three. The diagram. Uh, the diagram, which is there's something strange about Rich Buckler and Roy Thomas. Like when Rich Buckler gets gets on these books, this has happened before. Where I feel like. 
in order to explain what's happening, there's the world's simplest flow charts. They're really kind of crazy. But in the first panelgram, you'll see each planet is is being attacked um, by forces pretending to be from that planet. And then the next panel is them counterattacking to the, the planet. Which is yeah. not actually happening in the story, though. Well, this, this <laughs> is part of the problem. And again, part of me really does wonder is if this is... Because I, I had cast suspicions or doubts on uh, Rich Buckler as pacing abilities before. But honestly, I think this has a lot to do with the way that also Roy Thomas has um, paced things. Because you really don't... It's not... The end of 160 really is more or less the beginning of the epic where you... And, and you don't even fully get the picture of everything that's going on. It's really in the course of 161 that, that I think all the pieces sort of come together and, and entertainingly so. Well, uh, you know that things have fallen apart and that you have to have an infographic in 162 to explain it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, it, and you're right. It's a very simple infographic. But the fact that they actually have to stop the story on page three mm-hmm. and go, this is actually what's happening, you guys. Mm-hmm. It's perhaps a lesson that they're not really in control of what's happening. Well, like they realize they've not explained it properly. You know, it, it's true. It's true. And again, there's there's various fun bits. It, it, so Thomas seems to be taking, you know, it's his continuity stuff. What happens is uh, in issue, gosh, 161 is uh, Johnny, who's totally honked off about the fact that Reed has sold the team without telling him. Uh, and he feels betrayed, uh, ends up getting pissy, traveling to the fifth dimension to, to make time with his with his blue chickapoo and finds uh essentially that he is under attack um because the androns by the androns well no first he's attacked he's under attack by the blue guys because oh, the blue guys think, they he's, think he's an android exactly i mean it makes really no sense when you look at the various pictures but okay sure yeah right you know why not uh, you know, where would Marvel be without the misunderstanding? Jeff? With, yeah, without the misunderstanding in the fight. Uh, meanwhile, you see the thing on his uh, Ben Grimm on the alternate Earth, who is teamed up with the human Ben Grimm and his wife Sue Grimm, uh, and but ends up finding himself betrayed, um, gassed and turned into by the army. And I forget why. Why does Ben, the human Ben Grimm, end up? Uh, gassing Ben and ter- you know, for the plot. In. Oh, okay. I mean, it's it's you have a couple of panels of human Ben Grimm talking to Sue Grimm and saying, "Tell me, I did the right thing. Tell me." Right. But the stakes of what it would have meant had he not done that are never fully explained. Yes. It's essentially he did this because otherwise things would be worse for our Ben Grimm. Yes. But why that is? Yeah. But that's that's somewhat unclear. I feel like I'm doing a terrible job summarizing this stuff. No, Needless it's not, you're, to you're, say, you're actually not. That's the sad thing. Yeah, like, exactly. Although you did miss out that before Ben is gassed, he fights dinosaurs. Yes, he fights a dinosaur. That, that uh, reality is being invaded through time travel. Yes, that is it's ostensibly Reed's, Reed, Reed's invention that is being used against this planet is 
the time machine that is actually Dr. Doom's that Reed perfected, which I think is kind of hilarious considering someone bought Reed Richards, you know, bought the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And the one piece that they're using is basically his piece of pirated IP. Like I would kind of love to see an issue in which Dr. Doom takes Reed to court and legally wins back the time machine. You know, the other thing that was interesting to me about this is they say Reed perfected it. Did Reed ever actually use the time machine? You know, I can't think of an FF story where he did. I can think of a a Marvel two in one story where the thing did. Yeah, but that that hadn't come out yet because in the bulletin bulletins they're talking about launching Marvel two in one. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very confusing to the extent to which they have. And again, I think that it's a little bit of a of a gimme. I mean. This is the thing. Thomas is amb- is simultaneously ambitious and and lazy. Or not lazy, but let's say cavalier. And honestly, parts of what make issues 160 through 163 really enjoyable is the degree to which he's he is kind of cavalier about the there's a lot of fun in these issues. I mean, you, I, I didn't talk about like, I I barely, I haven't even gotten to issue 162, but I should mention issues 160 and 161. Not only do they have stuff like Reed, like jumping through a danger room scenario. And it turns out that he's losing his powers. And of course, in true Reed Richards fashion makes it a point not to tell the person that he loves and trusts the most in the world because he doesn't want to upset them. Actually talking about the start of 161 for a second, I was rereading this last night, and I had a question for you. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about Roy Thomas aping Stan Lee in, mm-hmm. in his Fantastic Four. Yeah. The monologue that starts 161, mm-hmm. which is essentially an extended action sequence with Reed testing his powers, uh, it's not Stan Lee. Where did that come from? Because it's a, it's a style that I would put with Gerber or Engelhardt. Mm-hmm. And it, it actually surprised me to see uh, Thomas do it because it's, it's a very particular tone mm-hmm. that's at once... Uh, for people who listen to Explain the X-Men, they, they make a lot of comedy about Claremont's angry narrator. Mm-hmm. And this is not an angry narrator. It's an incredibly verbose... But self-aware and self-mocking narrator. Yeah, there, there's a part where it actually goes for its time for dare we say it phase two. Yes, and it's it's there's there's something about that, and you know, and at the same time, it, it then goes now for the first time for perhaps the first time in his life, Reed Richards freezes. He knows a feeling akin to fear, and yeah. thus he takes the action he had never he had hoped never to be forced to take. With a spasm of pain, his right arm stretches across the death-filled chamber, his hands grasping desperately the emergency master switch to turn off any and all devices still to come. So there's this breathless, you know, oh shit, you can't believe what's happening. Right. But you also have, it's time for Dare We Say It Phase 2, which is like very aware of how overblown it is. Yes. No, no, no. As, As with the titles, the fact that the first, the issue 160, in one world and out the other... Thomas is, Thomas has been at Marvel for a while now. He is, you know, ascended to the top and has tried to basically claw his way back down. And you can see, to me, honestly, like as opposed to his 
Avengers issues, which I thought were genuinely overwrought and very much under the shadow of Stanley. Thomas, the Thomas that we see here has developed a lot of work on his own. I mean, you can't understate the importance of, say, something like Conan, for example. Uh, but I, I think there's there's a point at which the 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 Thomas who is here is 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 seems a lot breezier, a lot happier, and for the most part is is aware that in writing in Stanley's voice, he's he's almost burlesquing it, which is fascinating because Stanley's narrative voice is a burlesque so often. You know, you you that that whole sort of the move between sheer breathlessness and then kind of deflating it with a, you know, dare we say it kind of thing. It, but for whatever reason, Thomas, I feel, makes it a lot more arch, you know? I mean, he... Yeah, it, it, it is very arch. You know, he very much wants his... And th again, I think, you know, we talked a little bit the, the last time Thomas had blown through uh, where he had basically was always a little too self-conscious. His his earlier run on the FF had a lot of him pointing out the problems with the plot while the plot was happening as, you know, because he was just, he couldn't let himself um, not come off as smart as, as, as making mistakes or whatever. And, and fortunately I feel like what we get here is a lot more relaxed version of that you know maybe his way of being more knowing than the material is to actually start camping it up like he he knows that the melodrama has to be there he, he knows that it's it's what people want but and he's willing to engage in it but i think he also has that awareness of in order to make the melodrama work you almost have to wind it up and 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 basically deflate things before they get too ridiculous you know uh and and i think again there's a weird because issues um 160 161 and 162 have the ff splitting into separate components you have uh ben off in search of the other thing you have the human torch go into the fifth dimension and get himself embroiled with the with the rebels that are fighting back against the Androns. And and you've got you've got Reed and Sue, and each one of them has a slightly different way of being in the world, I guess, for lack of a better term. One of the things that really did drive me crazy about issue 160, 160 was how much jabbering uh, ben Grimm does. He's talking to Lockjaw, but he's all externalized monologue. And a lot of it is Thomas, I think, trying too hard to be witty and riffing off of the Ben Grimm voice and I think really enjoying himself, but also just probably overwriting the shit out of the pages. But then looking through it again, I sort of wondered, you had you have he has the word he has thing has the word balloons Reed has a lot of the captions and then you have Johnny have a lot of at first um, speech balloons while he's on earth complaining about Reed Richards. And then it switches very heavily to thought balloons once he gets into the fifth dimension. So I can't, I think it would be 
too generous to say that that Thomas is trying to separate out the characters and show how they're sort of different in a way, but there is some level at which he's aware, you know, that just just the issue prior, he'll have the thing walk around the same way that Johnny does, but the thing is talking constantly, and you actually have Johnny being observant and thinking uh, as as various things happen to them, you know? Um, I also want to mention there was something that I thought, you know, I mentioned we, we talk about this opening with Reed where it turns out that he's losing his powers and uh, like a rubber band that's been stretched out of shape, I think, um, which I thought was a, an interesting image. I also love the fact that issue 160, I think it's 160, is the has a two-page sequence that is very, very Roy Thomas in that Sue ends up, oh no, Alicia ends up catching a cab and the cab driver is the cab driver from FF1, you know, the, the very first cab driver who, who ends up having a, picking up Sue as the invisible girl as a cab driver and, and ends up having an, an invisible dollar bill extended to her, to him uh, and freaking out. And it's, it's a little, it's one part like Thomas being campy. But the other thing that I think is very interesting is, is it's very, the cabbie is very specific in saying like, oh yeah, that happened back in 61. You know, I'm fascinated by the way in which Reed losing his powers might has, which isn't explained as of yet, you know, during the run and the issues that we have here has a little bit to this idea of like, yeah, he's just had him a long time. And now maybe they're just not working anymore. He's just not able, he's just not as, he's just not as, um, viable, I suppose, you know, he's just not as elastic. And I, and I wonder again, there's that weird thing for me is like, I don't think that Thomas is writing metatextually there, but sometimes I do wonder if he's thinking metatextually, you know? So that's the stuff that's sort of happening in the background. And like I said, there's all these little bits and pieces as these three worlds come together and the FF plus the Reed Richards thing sort of team up to take on Archon's big master plan, uh, you would think that this would lead to an enormous sort of... I think the problem is is you literally have supposedly the war hap of, of three war worlds is happening, according to Thomas. And yet all you're really seeing are big for the movies, but kind of small for the comics kind of action scenes. You know, the fact that the that you have not even crazed Vikings, but basically panicked and confused Vikings running around New York and one sort of meager dinosaur that Ben Grimm gets to punch. And that's the weight of one invasion. And another invasion is basically a bunch of, again, the Rich Buckler special, uh, androids without fingers. You know, it's just... They, they can't pick up anything. Just make a couple of doors, you know, and those dudes are in serious trouble, you know, just give them, give them a rotary phone. They are, they are powerless, you know, anyway, all these things, you think the story should be building up bigger and bigger and bigger. And instead it comes into finale, which is uh, again, almost a kind of campy piss up of the type of cosmic, um, villain slash hero that 
the Fantastic Four encounter, you know? Um, what do you, I don't know, do you, do you want to, do you want to talk about that finale or is there well, something? Before we, before we get even into finale. Yeah. I want to talk about the fact that, um, well, first of all, 162 ends with, cause you, you, you're right. You think it's going to be building up and you think it's going to end with everyone together. Yes. Standing against Archon. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, yeah. uh, Reed never actually meets Reed in the story. Yeah, they, they telepathically communicate, but they're never in the same space. And the one sixty two ends with Reed thing and Ben thing having to split up. They had previously been together, fighting together on the same Earth. Uh, they have to split up. Reed thing teams up with Johnny mm-hmm. uh, to confront Archon, while Ben thing has to go. Uh, to destroy the nexus of realities, which is what is powering Archon, essentially. Not not the nexus of all realities. No, no, just, just, just another right. nexus of realities. Exactly. Yeah. And as he does so, he is confronted by certainly the character find of 1975. Yeah. The sensational character find of 1975. Guard. G-A-A-R-D. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened. Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler are looking at Old Fantastic Four and they're like, isn't the Silver Surfer awesome? Yeah, the Silver Surfer, Surfer's really awesome, isn't he? And it's great that they just did like a dude on a surfboard and they're completely shameless about it. And we all bought it. Yeah, you're right. If only we could do that nowadays. You're right. Hey, I went to see some ice hockey yesterday. Do you think we could do a cosmic-powered ice hockey guy? No, that'd be ridiculous. No, no, I think if we just like are shameless about it, we'll get away with it. Enter Guard. Yeah. He is a cosmic ice hockey goal uh, guard. Uh, And in order for the thing to complete his mission, the thing has to fire a puck to the goal that is the cosmic nexus. Yes. While guard blocks him. Yeah. That is genuinely the thing thread from 163. Yeah. That's honestly it. I will put up images of guard donuts so you'll understand that Rich Buckler did not give a shit when it came to designing guard. <laughs> Genuinely was like, what if you have shit guards and the gloves and a hockey stick? <laughs> it's amazing. What? It's amazing. Because here's the thing. When I first read it, I was like, well, this is like, that was the point where I was like, well, fuck this. <laughs> they, they clearly don't give a shit anymore. Like, why should I? They've given up. See, but, yeah, yeah, again, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is like, this is one of these things where you totally accept the Silver Surfer because he's around when you're kids and you read and you're kidding, like, that's awesome. And then you read Guard when you're an adult and you're like, well, that's lame. And it's not. It's right. great in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. And that's one of the things that I kind of, that I do, I do dig about it. And, and there's a way in which. I don't know. It you know, uh, I think it's worth saying also that um part of it may just be that Sinnet and Buckler have found their groove, but the the I think for the most part the art through 160 through 163 is really quite smooth and and in that Sinnet is doing the inking and Buckler has hit a I think his storytelling is relatively dynamic so yeah even though that you have i mean it's not just the fact that guard is a goalie in space which is awesome with a big glowing you know hockey stick 
but the fact that he is dressed up like a, you know, a mustard and ketchup packets, you know, is just, is just crazy. I think it's hilarious. It shouldn't necessarily work. But when you look at the storytelling in the first few pages of 163, because it starts with Ben and Guard facing off, complete with Thing throwing his puck and it being caught by uh, Guard, it's it's all in enjoyably incredibly dynamic I, again it it om it, it i think thomas has realized by like sort of sneaking into that realm of camp he's able to do stuff that almost reads like a parody but also isn't you know it's as if this well, it, is the it, only way he can really kind of yes. get back to this by him turning it into a parody, and let's be honest, Guard reads like a parody of The Silver Surfer. Yes. I said when we did the last Wade Watt that I'd been reading Not Brand Deck lately. Uh, and I had, I got the Marvel Masterworks of Not Brand Deck out, which is essentially the brainchild of Thomas and Gary Friedrich. Mm-hmm. And they write the majority of the stories for the first few issues. Mm-hmm. Stanley contributes a few. Mary Severin actually plots, uh, writes a couple, a few as well. But Thomas, the whole setup of Not Brand Deck is. Thomas and Friedrich went to Stan and said, we want to do a parody of DC. Stan said, no, no, we're doing a parody of Marvel. That, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. We'll do a parody of our guys. And that way we'll look like we can take a joke. Mm-hmm. And also, our readers know our guys. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry that they don't know what they're parodying because it's our guys. Mm-hmm. And you realize that Thomas is great at doing parodies of the Marvel heroes. Mm-hmm. And also very quickly goes to everyone else as well. Like, with it, by issue three, he's like, you know, now I'm doing parodies of, of, of all these other, like Magnus Robot Fighter. But he does parodies, and so does Lee for this matter, do parodies of the Marvel characters that are essentially just the Marvel characters in slightly dumber stories. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, read, like, really, like, affectionate, oh, we love our characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any more than like any more than a parody. There's there's no biting satire there at all. It's mm-hmm. it's literally just our characters are great. And I was reading it thinking, I feel like he gets the Fantastic Four better here than he does in Fantastic Four. Mm. And then you get to to this, which does read like a parody, mm-hmm. and it's great. Yeah. And also in in one sixty, it's the same. One sixty, you have the thing, basically giving a long, long look to Lockjaw mm-hmm. about like, just how wacky his life is. Mm-hmm. And to go and like, you know, and here are some monsters. Oh, what a revolting development. Yeah. And it's great. And it's yeah. totally a parody of the thing as he appeared in the Lee Kirby issues. Mm-hmm. But it's so wonderfully spot on. Yeah. For all the, the character notes, I think Thomas doesn't nail in these mm-hmm. issues. When he writes the characters as this camp version of themselves. He's, it's great. It's really enjoyable. And, and 163 is super camp. You have Reed essentially being like an on-the-sidelines cheerleader <laughs> for what's going on. Because Reed is just happily, safely on his earth. Yes. Okay, sending psychic messages to the rest of the team going, don't give up. Yeah. You can do it. Come on there. But Reed is spot on in his breathless, What? I just like all of that. I I really like I said, but it got past my grumpiness. I really enjoyed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's also something where, apart from the 
shocking you'll never guess the identity the true identity of guard uh a, apart from that it's also enjoyably pathos free for the most part you've got a little bit just like it, it is and it is i mean yeah. the the true identity of guard and and, and reads reads things oh johnny i've met you but my johnny died in vietnam yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah. Holy shit. I mean, they lay that on super thick. Well, they lay it on super thick, but I... I mean, I, for, for a reason, for the, yes. of the reveal. Spoilers, everyone. Guard turns out to be that Johnny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Uh, like, they never explained, like, how he didn't die in Vietnam. Like, they, they never explained the origin of Guard. They're just like, this is who Guard is. It's that Johnny. They, Moving they, on. They do jam... I think they do jam it on, jam it in there, unless... Unless it's one of those things where I read the letters page and they explained it after the fact. Johnny supposedly died in Vietnam. That's what everyone thought. In fact, he was a POW. He was, he, and yeah, he Archon was. ended up combing through all of Vietnam. They said. like, and, Oh, no, no. It says. It, it says. It says mm-hmm. um, Archon search months earlier through it. In Southeast Asian jungles of an alternate Earth or Archon salvaging of a shell-torn body. His restructuring of human mind, a mind which now thinks only of its owner as someone called Guard, yes. forgetting that he had once been named Johnny Storm. Yeah. But still, like, I, I don't know. I, I feel that that's... I, I feel that's not much more than just going, it's Johnny, everyone! Also, I love that this Johnny, who has been a POW in, in Vietnam and... and is no longer think of himself as Johnny Storm, has exactly the same hairstyle as the regular Johnny. Isn't that great? That is so great. It's kind of like, well... Johnny's hair might change in the comic a lot, but yeah. Johnny's hair yeah. across all dimensions... It stays the same. the same. And it's it's nice to know that even though, even when he is in space as a cosmic goal uh, goalie defending a uh, you know black holes nexus, he still has time to like thoroughly blow dry his hair in that sort of John Travolta oh, yeah, yeah. kind of he way. Does have, he's got a lot of lift. That's, yeah. There's a lot of volume. A lot Guard's of volume. Hair. A lot of volume in Guard's <laughs> hair, which is amazing considering he's wearing all that stuff. But uh, you know, but I do want to point out, like by contrast, we have a situation and maybe I just sped right through it, but here's a situation where the thing goes to another world, encounters himself as a human being who's also married to Sue, and he kind of doesn't give a shit, you know? Like, he really, this is not the, everyone else would take, would spend a lot of time, or at least the prerequisite number of Ben Grimm self-pity panels. Uh, But that's actually kind of enjoyably gone. Mr. Fantastic, the fact that Reed is kind of a minimal presence in these issues as well is, I mean, there's, there's, there's all kinds of Reed. I mean, but he's, it's Reed Richards, the thing. And therefore, exactly. Our Reed Richards is actually surprisingly absent from this four parter. Yeah, exactly. He Um, he really is for, for really the, at least three of the issues reduced to a talking head. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and interestingly enough, is it in this bout of issues where you get, where, where I guess, I, I guess it's in the later issues where Sue, we find out that Sue's powers are stronger, right? 
or is it in is it in, it's, in it's, one of these issues? No, it's right. it's not. It's actually six uh, one sixty four. It's an nice okay. issue. So yeah. So anyway, uh, so what's amazing is how much less than the sum of the parts that it is, and yet for the most part, really enjoyable. And again, there's a way in which, honestly, seeing how much uh, juice Jonathan Hickman goes on to goose. Uh, out of the idea of Reed Richards across multiple dimensions. It's funny that it's such a, um, it's the I, I, impetus. It's a non-starter here. Yeah, it's a non-starter. And again, there's that, to me, I'm like, again, it's 2016. The idea of a corporation snatching up IP across multiverses and then using it to sort of start wars so that it can control, you know, that for its own profit like that part is way more interesting than oh, it's, that it's, dumb dinosaur barbarian guy with the there, lightning. There's so sticks. much ahead of its time, and also it's worth pointing out because we we haven't really crossed this this off in the in the plot synopsis that we've been right. given. Like that that part of the storyline really doesn't go anywhere either. No. So that that's revealed as uh, the interlocking technologies, interrelated techno technocracies, or whatever they're called, are, are all the same company run by the same man uh, who is a stooge of of Archon, mm-hmm. uh, and he is confronted by our Reed and Sue, yes. and basically is like, "Okay, you guys, you got me, but I'm only doing it because Archon made me do it," and then it's dropped. It, it it really is. It it's not it's not followed up on in following issues. All of it is just sort of disappears, and it's it's strange because it is so far ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. It it really is an idea. You know that that could be, and I'm not giving anyone any ideas here, but that could be it, 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 the next Marvel crossover. You know, yeah. and that would be as timely as Civil War Two. Yeah, yeah. I I I'm absolutely in agreement with you, and and it's just. It it does point in a way to uh, some of Thomas's weaknesses, I think, in that Thomas really did like is way more into the idea of Archon than he is this much better idea that's in front of him. In part because Archon in the fifth dimension, and you know, it's it's a way for him to tie up three tie three different, completely different stories together into one big quote-unquote epic that on the one hand it for someone who's very excited seeing continuity come together or see someone play with continuity and also make the marvel universe feel like a consistent thing where these different pieces can be picked up and and sort of snapped together into a different storyline like that has its rewards but it also is a shame that it that it ends up because there's only so much space uh and time for the, the throwing you know that other actually better ideas end up getting shunted aside for it you know? but also like Harkon isn't really a presence in this story no he's really he, not. he get he gets his showdown with johnny and and reed thing mm-hmm. but even that is like basically this story could have been much better if the final issue had given you what you wanted Mm-hmm. Which is ultimately the big confrontation yeah. that Thomas seems determined to veer away from. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the the three issues leading up to this, maybe not so much one sixty two, which is in itself a bit of a damp squib, mm-hmm. but but definitely one sixty and one sixty one feel like they're leading up to this big epic, yes, this, this big, big epic deal. Yeah, yeah. And, and one, then yeah. Thomas is like, nope, 
And where he goes is interesting. Mm-hmm. Guard is, is goofy as shit, but also kind of wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it he just he comes up with all these ideas and is then like, I'm oh, moving on. Right. Right. You know, and it's fascinating because in a way it it is it's it's a chunk it's a big storyline. It's four issues, which is a lot for back then. And there's ways in which part of me is like I was I was pretty done with it by the time it was done, but I could also see like like you said, sort of in its ahead of its way kind of time, it would have been nice to see this play out across, you know, what we think of as one story arc now, which is six issues, you know, or even two. It would be, it would have to go a lot deeper with some of the characterization or the subplots or the ideas, but, you know, and certainly some of the scenes are are big, but it really, it's fascinating the way to which, Thomas manages to create a storyline that has it, you know, he boasts about having three worlds at war. It's world war three. And except they're not at war, which is like, he even ducks from that. Yes. The fifth dimension goes to the alternate earth and immediately run into, uh, Johnny recognizes Ben yeah. and sends the invading army home. And they're like, okay. Yeah. Right. Like he, 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 he undercuts his own premise so readily mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it almost feels like self-sabotage. Yeah, yeah. And and again, I do wonder sometimes if if this is just I don't know. It's fascinating. But um uh so so yeah, it starts off as kind of a big old mess and there are pieces that I but there are lots of little pieces in it that that I love. And what's interesting is is that it moves along with a kind of velo- it moves so fast that it 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 blows most of its big dramatic sequences for a series of um, stranger sort of smaller ones. You know, yeah, it, it's funny you said it starts off with a big old mess, and I was really tempted to be snarky and say, and it ends as a small old mess. Yeah, that's right. No, and I think that's I think that sadly that's entire. Mostly accurate. I mean, because again, the small mess that it has is is actually very enjoyable. Is sort of closer to the scale of things, you know. So, uh, do you, should we talk about issues one sixty four and one sixty five? Sixty five, yes. Yeah. Which see, uh, which are prime Thomas for me. Yeah, because it is. I'm going to resurrect a character who was in the nineteen fifties. Yeah. My name's Roy Thomas. Welcome to my comic book collection. Yeah. Um, notable, 164 is notable for uh, the first Jack Kirby cover that this title has yes. seen in quite some time. Yeah. In, if you were reading the uh, GIT Core scanned issues, mm-hmm. 163 actually has the open builds and saying that Jack Kirby is back at Marvel. Yes. And, and they're very, again, very excited about it and talking about how he's awesome. Oh my God. Which is so funny when you consider the uh, after-the-fact reporting on just how unwelcome Kirby was when he returned to Marvel. Right, right. Um, anyway, so it's this is a two-parter which the letters page will later reveal was meant to be a giant-sized Fantastic Four issue. Uh, and then when that title stopped existing, was retrofitted and new pages were added mm-hmm. um, to, to make it into a two-parter. It feels like that. Yeah, it it feels like it should have been one issue. 
It is an incredibly slight storyline. The storyline, such as it is, is the issue starts, uh, 164 starts with, as you said before, Sue showing off that her powers are much stronger now. And so she is sparring with Ben Grimm and showing that she is easily his equal, if not his better. Mm-hmm. She manages to deflect his initial charge. She ducks from his second and then she disarms him by turning him invisible. Yeah. And so she is, she is a, a force to be reckoned with, which would be lovely if that led into anything else in this storyline, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. This scene is interrupted by Johnny going on a date with Frankie Ray, who will years from now become a very important character in this series. Yeah, it's kind of great. First appearance of Frankie Ray, I was like, oh my God, that's right. Yeah. More important is Johnny's date outfit, Uh which has to be seen to be believed. And you bet your butt I'm going to put a photograph of this uh, in the show notes because what would you describe it as? Disco cowboy? Yeah, I would say disco cowboy sounds about right. But the best part is it's disco cowboy drawn by George Perez. Drawn by a young George Perez who doesn't quite understand how big heads are. So in the scene where he's showing off his outfit, yeah. uh, Johnny's head is significantly smaller than it should be. Well, I, I yeah, because I think he was trying for some some degree of perspective. That then got. <laughs> I'm not sure he was. Well, uh, but because I think what happened was he just was so into the the fact that that he's wearing pin brown pinstripe pants, a green paisley shirt, a a uh, red um, ascot I, yeah. and an, uh, best of all, a sort of leather fringe cowboy vest with the initials JS stylized on one breast. It, In green. Yes. It's, it's as if Johnny Storm is trying to cosplay as Batlash, but felt that he couldn't quite go far enough. You know? To to complete the outfit, I want to say that uh, while Jeff described the pants as uh, brown and white pinstripes, first of all, in the original scans, it's orange and white. They're also flared, and he's wearing platform boots. Oh, yeah, he's got the platform boots. You're right. And you're right. Um, it is or- orange. It's I, to I, me, I, in what the is, scans, what it is looks pretty is, All of this is unstable molecule clothes. Because see that flames on. Do the flame on, does his flame on include his flares or his platform boots? No. Yeah. Yeah. They just vanish. Anyway, he goes in his date with Frankie, which is interrupted by the appearance of the Crusader, who everyone now would recognize as Marvel Boy. Or possibly Quasar, for that matter. You know, the thing that's really weird about it, when I read this original set of issues, as a kid, I was deeply confused because I'm like, that's Marvel Boy. Like they had run, I I guess they had done rerun reprints of Marvel Boy and some of the issues of fantasy masterpieces that I had before it became retitled as I think World's Greatest Comics, and so I was like, but why? Basically, why is why is Marvel Boy calling himself something other than Marvel Boy and beating the shit out of people when he's so clearly Marvel Boy? And of course, that that is me not understanding the the dramatic hook of Thomas's story, which the, is the Roy Thomas of it all. Yes, the Roy Thomasness of it all. I I would say, to be fair, this to me is the most unThomas like of of his of Thomas like ways. We you know we see the Crusader fuck shit up, and then in one sixty five we get to see his 
his quote unquote origin, we discover that he's Marvel Boy, who thanks to uh, the persistent dickishness of the banking industry, uh, ends up causing the death of his family and indeed all of Uranus. <laughs> anyway, so, but what's really? interesting. Really? Yeah, Graham. Even as a joke, joke laughing at Uranus, really? Yeah, Graham, it's required by law. I just took, I took that hit for you, buddy, because otherwise you were going to have to do it. Because no, it's no, required. I wasn't. So you say. Just, anyway. Just, just putting that out there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, why, uh, so the date is interrupted by the Crusader, who is, as you said, going after the banks because the banks, in refusing a loan, uh, caused the death of his father and the death of his adopted planet. The date, the fact that the date is interrupted means that Johnny has to flame on, means that Frankie is appalled by this, yeah. is so appalled that she appears in a number of panels, mouth agape, saying nothing. Yeah. Which I think is hilarious. It leads to, uh, for the next few issues, you'll see Johnny just be in a pissy mood because Frankie won't return his calls because he was forced to be a superhero. Johnny Storm in these issues is the very, very, very personification of first world problems. <laughs> it is amazing. Anyway, uh, Johnny uh, goes up against the Crusader. He wins-ish in that he defends the person. He saves the life of the person who the Crusader was attacking. But in doing so, he is forced into unconsciousness. He is saved by Reed who has to stretch further than he ever has before. I haven't stretched this far in years, he says. The strain is becoming unendurable. Heart's pumping. Every muscle feels like it'll snap, but must reach just a bit further. I must! Uh, and then, hilariously, he he seems to snap back into place while the thing in sewer holding on to him yeah. and pulls them out the window. Yeah. Didn't know that was the way he his powers worked. Anyway, that brings them together. They decide, oh, screw it. We should go and hunt for the Crusader because that's a great idea. That's definitely not going to go wrong in us at all. They find out uh, the Crusader's backstory mm -hmm. uh, to an extent just in time to confront him one more time. He reveals his own backstory. He was Marvel Boy. He is going after the banks to save uh, because they were... Uh, I mean, why is he really? Because they, because they refused the loan, sure. But is his point that the banks are corrupt for refusing the loan? Or just that he's mad? Well... Like, so like where, where did it... Be, did he think the banks were unjust? He, he does. Was he just out for, for revenge? Because what's interesting to me is he, he explains his story. And while the thing takes on Quasar, uh, not Quasar, the Crusader, and, and defeats him, mm -hmm. the thing then turns against the banks themselves. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you guys are bums. He, yeah. Not his, his agile words, but, but that's his attitude. And he, he then buries the bank manager in the money and tells everyone to not rescue him mm -hmm. because he's so angry. But I'm not sure if it's just, you know, the banks should have approved the loan. Mm -hmm. Or like what? I'm not sure what the the moral of the story is. I guess. Well, it, it, the Crusader is he he is his crusade is is as he says justice, but there's it's also it is also vengeance. Uh, in that he says quite clearly at one point what what ends up happening is, uh, you know they request a loan for certain medical supplies and 
it because the loan's not approved, it takes all this time for Marvel Boy to get what he needs. And by the time he gets back to the planet, God only knows what kind of medical supplies would have helped the destruction uh, by natural forces of the entire planet. That's just it. Like, why is he going to a human bank? If I bit, but well, he went to the human bank for medical supplies for, for medical supplies. Uh, I on, on for the colony on Uranus. And, uh, but by the time that he gets back there, it's a giant planet, nearly 2 billion miles from earth, a cold forbidding world receiving only uh, one three hundred fiftieth the heat and light that Earth does, yet home of a super civilization so old it had forgotten its own dim origins. Jeff, yeah. you're laughing at that. That's what you're laughing at. Oh yeah, definitely. It's called Uranus. Anyway, so uh... well, Grayson grew up there, knowing and caring little of the harsh, harsh methane winds which roared outside the Omnidome. <laughs> the Omnidome in Uranus. Anyway, so you're a he was. <laughs> Anyway, Marvel Boy says, if I if I had but been there, either to help or else to perish I by really, the side. Really, you take what? all the Uranus jokes and you don't even go, if I had but been there, and you don't call it the fact the butt's in there? See, there you go, Graham. There you go. This is this is your problem. Your problem isn't that I'm snickering at Uranus. Your problem is is that I'm just uh, not being clever enough about Uranus. So... That's, that's what I'm saying. If you're going to be a kid... Bring some class to it, Jeff. No, I'm Arthur. sorry. Go the other way is why I'm saying. Bring less class to it. So anyway, uh, so he was detained on Earth by a hard-hearted banker's rubber stamp. And so he is going to destroy Calvin McClary and then his financial empire. So... Uh, but, but again, mm-hmm. why? He, well, like, I, un- I understand his motivation. Yes. Is what I'm saying. But I don't understand what the story is actually saying. Do you know what I mean? Because he even says, like, when he was on Earth, he was a superhero. That's right. So at what point has he forgotten that if he fucking destroys this guy's bank and financial empire, he is doing bad? Yes. Well, I... I I like think it's, it's, right. It's just he's, he's so blinded by the need for vengeance. Is that like I think that's what it's trying to say? Well, and this there's is... no lesson, I guess. I no, think that's no, 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 no. The human Human Torch basically says that he's nutty as two fruitcakes, and this is one of the things that I find. Like I started to say before, my first snickering about Uranus made you drag us back to the plot. Is unlike other times where. Thomas has resurrected a character or uh, at least the shape of a character from his beloved childhood, like turning Johnny Storm's outfit back to red because it reminds him of the original human torture or whatever. Marvel Boy is here, but in a kind of weird fucked up incarnation. And, And it's unlike it being the sort of thing of, oh, this is like an evil bank robber who found Marvel Boy's outfit, for example, which normally would have appeased people. Or even as you, you know, the what Thomas would later do, which is, is that this guy is still the same character that he was. Uh, Marvel Boy is very different here. You know, he's not the typical um you know, Thomas Retcon, I put him now he's back in play. He exists only more or less to be taken off the board. And again, I don't know. I really don't know, but I do wonder the extent to which 
Thomas uh, is playing at some sort of game here. You know, I mean, he here's a guy who is has what has helped Marvel ascend to this huge level. You know, and he essentially brings back Marvel Boy as you know, whose his name is it. You know, has Marvel in the title, and it's heavily associated associated with like banks, money, and uh, psychopathic behavior. You know, it. It's. I don't think that he's necessarily saying anything about about Marvel per se, but I, uh, or if what it is isn't specific, but I do feel that there's some sort of. Uh, mm, I don't know. Th- there's there's a tension there. It doesn't make sense as a story because because the because maybe the symbology symbology is a is important it's really interesting to me one of my favorite pages is is that you've got the thing and marvel boy slugging it out in a vault and again because this is perez but it's kind of the awesome version of perez there's literally money flying everywhere it's it's impossible to admit you know this battle is happening in an enormous pile of money and i i again probably doesn't mean anything but there's also ways in which i do wonder to what extent you know thomas is using this character in a very different way than he normally than all the characters he's going to go on to resurrect in the invaders or something in part because he's got something else on his mind maybe maybe that's the point of the story or maybe it's just a giant-sized ff where he was like oh i want to bring back marvel boy you know uh, but yeah, I want to bring back Marvel Boy as a delusional dick. Yeah, as who, a delusional who, dick. Who, who does not like I, 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 he is delusional. I don't think there's any other way to play it. Mm-hmm. But I guess the reason I keep harping back and like what's actually going on in this issue is fascinating to me is that you then have the thing turn on the bank manager. Because mm-hmm. the bank manager isn't even the guy. He's not the guy who turned down the loan. Yes. He's not the guy who owns the bank. Mm-hmm. He's just the bank, the manager of that particular branch. Who, don't get me wrong, is is uh, an angry bureaucrat. And if there's one thing that we keep seeing Ben Grimm mm-hmm. having little patience for, it's angry bureaucrats. Yeah. You know, he lifts them up and he goes, ah, why I oughta a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and this is very much in keeping with that. But there's something about this in particular and about the fact that Ben then threatens other people that he'll deal with them if they help the bank manager. Mm-hmm. I'm like, there's something going on here, and I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there. I, 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 but like, like I said, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the, the the these two issues are weird. They're they're just they don't really work as a superhero story. They feel they feel ex- overextended. Yeah. The the Crusader doesn't really work as a uh, an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's definitely not. He should be a sympathetic antagonist, but like you said. His backstory is kind of comedic because he can't get the money for his dad's medication, and when he comes back, his entire planet is dead. Yeah, like how can he really blame that on the bank? Like it's not like the bank destroyed the planet, right? It's, it's like it's it's just that he would have stopped it had he been there. But even then, who's to say he would have been there? He might have been off doing something else, right? Well, it, it's just but there's wonder- so much of it that just feels like it's happening because it should happen. But I also feel that, the, don't you feel that it, which could be the case, but I mean, 
we've looked at some of Thomas's stuff before, and Thomas is one of those dudes who knows has, is is part of and sympathetic to the counterculture ostensibly, but really his values are kind of conservative and status quo esque. You know, sure, sure. So there is there is a little bit of the this is supposed to feel like the kind of classic Marvel antihero. You know, I mean, he's not in a way almost very different from, say, Morbius or whatever, who blames the other scientists for not being able to help him, blah, 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 you know, and now he's a cursed monster in search of human blood or whatever. It's kind of the same kind of anti-hero type thing and centered around this idea of the big banks fucking it up for the for the little guy in which the crusader is the little guy. But he just. That's not that's not where Thomas's sympathies lie, and maybe because of which, any time where he's trying to make it seem like, oh yeah, these bank managers are uptight and they're bad, and that's why Ben is is teaching them a lesson, you know, is very much that kind of awareness that that Marvel that the Marvel characters are tied to the counterculture, and yet Thomas himself is not so much is not yeah you know yeah. and i so i i feel that he's pretty divided here but you know or else like i said there's just some weirder larger stuff i do want to say i don't know if you noticed picked up on this but the the scene where uh the crusader and ben ben are slugging it out in the bank vault um i thought it was hilarious the timing isn't quite right but you know Ben says, me, I got some plain and fancy clobbering to take care of. And as my dear old Aunt Petunia used to say, there's no time like the present. She had a real way with words. You know, it's so hilarious the way in which Thomas is like building up to the it's clobbering time. But instead, it's a completely different aphorism, you know. Oh, which he does uh, in another couple of times in this run. Yeah. Which I love. I love that Aunt Petunia... It's just like as a framework for the thing to say anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, um, so yeah, these, these issues are not great. Although I don't know. I love Perez on this stuff. Perez and Sinnott look really good to my eye. So, um, but you know, they do Perez stuff. It, it's classic Perez, but mm -hmm. it, it is, it, it's very much the Perez of, the very start of his new Teen Titans, I'd say, like yeah. that that visual, uh, but it it totally works. And Sinnet just makes everything look great in a way that we've talked before about Sinnet not meshing with like Roman Afraidin. Yeah, uh, Sinnet really does bring out a lot of good stuff in in Perez's work. Yeah, in these issues. Well, because they're they're sort of kindred spirits, you know. Both Perez and Sinnet are big fans of a lot of line work and a lot of detail on the page, you know, Perez has is way more confident with his dynamic layouts, or at least by the point that we see him here, he's got enough experience that you kind of don't have that kind of rough around the edges type stuff that you get from, um, Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, Buckler's early stuff. So yeah, it's, great i mean you know you still have the fact that perez everyone looks like they're they're ready to eat a gigantic hot dog you know that's just off panel but you know that's 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 
that's the price of Perez got a Perez, you know. It's well, it, especially Frankie when she is shot. Oh God, to join the Zealand Torch. Yeah, and there are. I mean, it really is. It's it's at least three, if not four, panels mm-hmm. where she is saying nothing, but you'll see shots of her just open mouthed. Yeah, in yeah. shock, mm-hmm. just being like, "What? Mm-hmm. What?" Yes. But yeah. she doesn't even say what. She's just open mouthed and shocked. Yeah, and it's hilarious to see them continually cutting back to her. Yeah. Well, because I, I I got the sense that he, he, well, what's nice about it is on the one hand it's hilarious, but on the other hand, considering how slight it is, it does it does bring home the point. You know, it really does kind of hammer home that idea of like, oh, she's certainly very shocked. <laughs> Well, exactly. You can't miss that. She is certainly very sure. Which, if you think about it, it's not like he... I mean, how the fuck did she not know that Johnny Storm was the Human Torch? Exactly. Because he's famous. Mm -hmm. And when he's famous, we've seen people flock to him and treat him like a celebrity before. Yeah. Yeah. So quite why... She is then shocked that her like it's not like he's saying I'm not Johnny Storm or he is in any way in disguise. Right. I guess we just have to imagine that Frankie is and well actually to an extent we find this out later because I feel like it's Byrne who who I tries think Byrne to actually her. does try and tie that end of things up yeah, as well. We're, we're yeah. By going like she's she's had an incredibly sheltered upbringing. Yeah. So uh yeah, it's kind of fun seeing her and knowing that she'll come back. Uh, should we move on to 166 and 167, or is there yeah, anything? Yeah. No, no, no. Let, let, let's move on to 166 and 167. But it's funny, like, Frankie Ray is funny because she will come back and play a role, what, 80 issues from now? Yeah, it's great. Like, it, it's amazing. It's like, whoa. So I guess that's a deep cut. Yeah. Um, 166, 167 is a two-parter that this, I'm going to say this is the nadir of these issues for me. I think yeah. these two issues are just lousy. Yeah. Just just not good. Um, if it's Tuesday, this must be the Hulk. It's the title of 166. And honestly, that's the highlight of the two issues for me. Uh, 167, <laughs> Titans 2. The plot, such as it is, the Fantastic Four are brought in to help the military help, uh, fight the Hulk and capture him. They do so. Reed has an invention that is going to... I'm not quite sure if it's going to put Bruce Banner's brain in charge of the Hulk or if it's going to prevent the Hulk from coming out. Mm-hmm. But uh, one way or another, Bruce Banner will be in control. But the military doesn't keep up their end of the bargain. No, no, they don't. And so the thing, for reasons of the plot only, turns against the military and the rest of the FF to team up with the Hulk yes. and go on a rampage. Yeah. The end. Well, actually, not the end, because... In 167, it's revealed that being so close to the Hulk, who, by the way, now gives off gamma radiation, which is now a thing that will probably never be mentioned again, turns the thing back into Ben Grimm. Yeah. And that's basically the end of the story. The end of the story is Ben turns back into Ben... I think Ben turns back into Ben Grimm. The Hulk goes, they've taken my friend away from me. Fuck it, I'm going back to my monthly comic. Yeah. And they set up the more interesting story to come. These two issues are lousy, Jeff. Yeah, well, and they're lousy in 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 a, an enjoyably wide array of ways. I mean, uh, I Vince, have to say, after George saying, Perez. what's that? Vince Coletta and George Perez. Damn it, Graham! You, you're just such a big fan of getting to my little punchlines <laughs> before me, aren't you? 
I'm, uh... I, I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. Mm. So, yes, after everything that I said about George Perez and Joe Sinnott uh, being uh, very simpatico, we get to see the exact opposite situation where George Perez and Vince Coletta um, really just clash like nobody's business, which is pretty hilarious. Uh, but uh, you know what I think is fascinating is, is again, I think that with more time and space or a more modern approach to storytelling, again, there's something where I could almost see this idea of, I mean, Ben just comes across like a lunatic in this, really. And there's even a fascinating little out in part of 167 where you see the thing have these strange, uh, almost like headaches or, you know, mental concentration lapses that he can't, that we know is the gamma rays acting on him. And Reed has mentioned that the gamma rays are in effect leaking from the Hulk and affecting Ben. So there's kind of this weird out of, oh, you know, that basically Ben is being sort of uh, manipulated unconsciously by the Hulk to essentially Hulk out and defend him, to be more like the Hulk. And you can even see it because, again, we didn't discuss it on the podcast, but in Giant Size Superstars number one, which I think was the their last meeting that was by Conway and Buckler, you had the two of them switch identities within their bodies so that the rampaging Hulk persona was inside the thing and Ben Grimm was trapped inside the Hulk's body. You've got a great fertile groundwork for explaining why the fuck Ben's doing the stupid shit that he's doing. And yet what's amazing is, is Thomas's little uh, reverso is the idea that the, the spasms are the gamma radiation, you know, affecting Ben such that it's, he ends up being, transformed back into human form um so once that's out the door maybe you can be like uh i guess there's there's ways in which the way people keep referring to the hulk as a monster and the monster it's clear that ben grates on it is you know that it it is it makes him there there's a bit where the hulk is being you know, it looks like he's being transformed. The the medical procedure is happening, or I don't know, whatever the hell you want to call it. He's being bombarded with shit, as usually happens in these Marvel comics. And Ben's like, no, 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 I can't let this happen. This is just this is just wrong. And he frees the Hulk. I can almost buy that, but then the next chunk of you know the very next issue 167 has the hulk and the thing literally smashing up soldiers going on a rampage and at several points attacking other members of the fantastic four in a way that is very uh it's kind of dangerous you know and it's weirdly reckless you know for ben it's very strange because you you there's definitely a way of reading the finale of 166 which is ben breaks the hulk free yeah as ben is reacting to an unjust situation yes ben empathizes with the hulk Mm -hmm. ben sees this mistreatment and on some level worries that this is his future and yeah. can't stand by and watch it happen. Right. But in 167, 
he's literally like, let's beat up the soldiers. Let's fucking blow up their planes. <laughs> Let, like, let's, let's get away. And then when the Hulk goes, let's land in St. Louis. Right. And, and, and like, just hang out. Ben's like, okay, as opposed to, that's a terrible idea. You're a massively powerful and destructive child. If you think I'm going to let you hang out in St. Louis. Yes. We yeah. know this is going to end badly. And it's just, there's no way to read what Ben does in this story in in any way other than Ben, ben is just being an idiot. Like, for the purposes of plot, Ben is being just amazingly stupid. Ben is engaging in almost sociopathic levels of caprice. Yes. You know, which, which doesn't, which again gets back to the Roy Thomas just likes these heroes having interpersonal conflict, no matter what, and doesn't actually understand what drives them. Cause this issue also ends with Ben become a thing becomes Ben Grimm again, Mm -hmm. but it actually ends with, Reed Richards saying, I wonder, does this mean the end of the Fantastic Four? Which is such a cliche by this point. Yeah, absolutely. Such a cliche. Yeah. That there is this element of, is is he playing this for laughs? Yeah. And I don't think, well, so so there's a couple of things. I don't think he is either. I think, I think again, Thomas is very much into the, the idea of he's he's aware that he's doing the cover band you know but again sort of like with guard he's trying to figure out ways in which he can get back to the big thrills but also have it be kind of in a more modern context so you do get the oh is this the end of the fantastic four which is you know a, a trope you know just sort of the same way that the um the number of issues in which the Fantastic Four almost crash their Fantastic Car out of the sky is topped by the even larger, you know, oh, now they're trying to stop an entire 747 that they're in from crashing out of the sky. Like, let's face it, the Fantastic Four's biggest foe over these 166 issues is flight. It's there in the first issue where they're, you know, they can't even like pilot a goddamn spaceship. Like, fuck Doctor Doom. It is the idea of actually lifting up into the air is the Fantastic Four's greatest fucking enemy. But but also I just think that there's a way in which seeing seeing again on the letters pages, Thomas talking about the idea of wanting to do a thing and Hulk story because they're incredibly popular, Thing versus the Hulk, but also come up with a new twist on it, you know? And it's the same giant size superstar. How do we twist this, twist it? Oh, they're in each other's bodies, you know? How do we twist this one? Oh, they actually team up. And you get to see a bit of them punching one another, but for the most part, it's Thing and Hulk take on the world because they're both monsters. And just the, the last little pass last page splash panel of 166 where they're standing together in full, you know, a full page spread of them raging. Like, I think, I think Thomas is, he is aware of what his audience wants. And that is kind of first and foremost, how he gives it to them. And and I say that and, and, um, I should really, I'm, I think you would be in good grounds to challenge me on that, considering what ends up coming 
next, the final storyline that, that we're going to cover. But, uh, but for the most part, Thomas is like, yeah, I got to get this moment in. I got to get that moment in. We've got to have that moment of melancholic reflection. So guard is going to be Johnny storm, but he doesn't even know that he's Johnny storm, you know, all that, all that. And everyone thinks he's dead. All of that kind of stuff, all that shtick. Like Thomas is trying, is aware that he's doing shtick, but he's also aware that he's got to try and come up with twists to it. And the problem is, is that, um, you know, sometimes Thomas... the twists don't work out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, because that's the thing. 166 first bunches were like, oh, the art is terrible. And really, the art is terrible. There are panels from this. I think the arguably worst panel in a weird way is the last panel on the second last page of the story where it's the Reed Richards and Sue and, and Johnny yes. looking shocked and Reed looks like the most off model Reed Richards ever drawn by a very excited twelve year old. He he I looks mean, he looks like Reed Richards slowly turning into Richie Rich. You know? It's it, kind it's of I great. mean it's it's a, but like for all the for all the, that is bad about that issue Story-wise, you know, there's there's readings there. There's ways to that it's not a disaster, but yeah. one six seven is just an outright disaster. Yeah, yeah. You've got sin, you've got Senate inking Perez, so it's back to looking really swell. It looks lovely, but it is, it's it's yeah, it's at the it's at the level of nonsense. You know, um, as capricious as we've seen Ben act throughout the Fantastic Four, and there have been times where he just has not come off as uh a good person at all this isn't even that this is just a, at a level of practically silver age dc wackiness you know it's like we gotta this is this is the hook we gotta make the hook happen how are we gonna make this hook happen you know but on the plus side it leads into 168 169 and 170 right so which are are just great little stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really are a lot of fun. There, there is again some goofiness. There's some wackiness that, that, for all the wackiness that is intended and is part of the story, there's some wackiness that isn't in terms of the character arc. But it's it's a super fun Fantastic Four story. Yeah, you, you can summarize these ones. Uh, okay. Well, so Ben Grimm has lost his powers. He's now human again. Um. Reed and Johnny are actually sort of a little bit, you know, Johnny's actually very upset. He wants a leave of absence from the Fantastic Four effective immediately uh, for absolutely no real reason, I guess, other than Frankie Ray broke up with him and he has no life and blah, blah, Johnny Storm, blah, blah. Reed, meantime, weirdly enough, is been is talking about how because the Fantastic Four have incorporated and there have to be four members on the team, he is talking about a replacement uh, now that Ben no longer has his superpowers. We see Ben without uh, his superpowers and he's out on the street with Alicia and gets uh, approached by some amazingly strange they look like manson cult disciples but in fact are just fans of alicia and then similarly when they come into the baxter building it's alicia that's treated as the vip and ben is completely overlooked and for the most part he, that he doesn't know how to deal with that which i love yeah he is i mean and what's great is is that it is sort of 
at least by Ben Grimm's standards, this is kind of a slow burn. You know, he he puts he's actually happy for Alicia, then a little bit bemused that he isn't even recognized, and then by the time that he steps into uh, a danger room to see the replacement, the, his replacement, and sees Luke Cage Power Man beating up a bunch of robots, he actually. Um, I think he's, again, he moves from bemused to disgruntled, and then he's fine until it turns out that his burgeoning career um, as a celebrity um, doing live appearances ends up getting destroyed by shitty editing, <laughs> which I do love. There's well, a, but not only, not only shitty editing, the fact that no one actually is interested in him because he's not the thing. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, he calls his agent and his agent's like, I'll give it to you straight, Ben. I'm over a barrel here. A few days ago, you could have had it all because you were the thing. Now, well, uh, you're just not visual, you know, and TV is a visual museum. Just great stuff, you know. Uh, meanwhile, um, Luke Cage hops in. You know, there's there's a mysterious dude who smashed his way into a bank. It's time for everyone to hop into the fantastic car and Ben insists on coming, which is kind of hilarious and crazy. Uh, and then proceeds to try and be um, a powerless superhero by piloting his bit of the fantastic car, splitting it aside and attacking the wrecker who really is one of the more powerful uh, villains in the Marvel universe um, and keeps almost dying at one point starts actively praying to God and trying to poop himself in order to try and make himself change into the thing and still can't do it. Um, which is, and I think one of the things that really underscores the pathos on this is, is that nobody's really in any danger except Ben. Ben keeps putting himself into these situations, but it's not like he's like, Oh, I have to turn into this character because there's no, um, you know, there's no other way or any of the other situations that 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 have boiled down to Ben is is at this point where he gets to be a human being and no longer has a reason to be a self-pitying drama queen. And he kind of can't stand not being the center of attention, ultimately. Yeah. You know, which is super fun. It is kind of fun. And it's it's an interesting form of insight into Ben, you know, I mean, it. it Thomas on one hand, necessarily... it... yeah, yeah. On one hand, it doesn't necessarily ring true. No, not entirely. Tom Thomas, o Thomas overplays it. Yeah, it's the point where Ben is beyond reckless. He he is endangering himself in in ludicrous ways, and also is overly mean. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at the same time, I love the idea that he really is more distraught than he understands, and not being the thing, and. Whether intentionally or not, that really colors my reading of the fact that when he's the thing, he is the loudmouth. He is the one with the wisecracks. Yeah. That, 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 you know, he's putting on a performance because he loves the attention. He loves being the thing. Exactly. And and this is something that that is a pretty consistent reading with the way that Ben has appeared throughout in Stan's run and kind of everyone that follows, but especially a lot of the stuff in Stan and Jack's run, you've got Ben acting so contrary that the only way it really does make sense is that he's someone who is kind of desperate for the attention. 
you know, and whether that's like acting like the happiest guy on the block or completely throwing the world's largest pity party of one, you know, he, he has, he has to have that attention. He has to feel like he's at the center of this attention. So there is the, the pathos on it. Again, it doesn't entirely work in particular. A lot of his aggression towards Luke Cage seems, uh, at, best misplaced and at worst kind of racist yeah. uh you know which again is something that that i wonder how much thomas is playing with deliberately you know um i i kind of think because i i feel like there was some reference comparing wasn't there i it wasn't in this batch of issues of comparing ben Grimm to archie bunker or something like that do you does that ring a bell with you? I, Maybe that's just it. It totally does not ring a bell with me. But okay. it also, I can see where it comes from. Yeah. What is interesting to me as well, beyond the racism aspect, which I think is definitely there, mm-hmm. is the constant complaints Ben has again internally because mm-hmm. he doesn't share this with anyone that that Luke is getting paid. Yes. That it's a job for Luke, and he only gets a stipend. Right. Like he only gets expenses, and how mm-hmm. dare Luke get paid? Mm-hmm. Which is it introduces this really weird classism element, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that 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 is really fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I don't know. You have to be super generous, and I think you know, parse that as um, Ben is kind of looking for excuses to resent Luke. Yeah, and yeah. That's exactly. where he comes up with. So, exactly. but um, but but he he soon comes up with a real reason to resent Luke. Yes. Well, so let's talk about issue. Uh, I guess where that moves us into part two, five characters in search of a madman, which I, I want to talk great about people. because yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> which is great be in for a lot of reasons, which starts off with Ben Grimm drinking in the most hillbillyish of New York bars ever and ends up getting in a big barroom brawl. And this, I have to say, this really had a huge impression on me when I read it when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Cause really? The, yeah. Oh, I was so in it. Because part of it is, I don't know, the, the dude, the self-pity. I mean, it's a great Ben Grimm self-pity scene. Ben's alone it, drinking it at a bar, you know, crying in his beer, so to speak, and ends up pissing off the locals, gets into a fight. And there's something kind of really lovely about... How Ben is, as the bar fight escalates, he keeps seeing himself as the thing. And what's kind of great is is because it's, it's, uh, Jesus, is it Buckler? It's Buckler again. It's Buckler. It's Buckler. Second, and, yeah. and, and so you, some of the panels that Buckler is pulling are very much from Buckler's run. And uh, he just, it, it, it kind of manages to sort of, seamlessly work that like you know in part because buckler uses a lot of the same swipes or poses it's kind of like oh yeah i can see i can see that like it really is evocative he doesn't really have to necessarily go out of his way to redraw stuff to make it fit and then the the scene where you know ben finally does manage to beat up beat up three guys and he just feels great and you see him smiling and happy and then he gets clubbed down from behind 
and everyone's going to just completely stomp him into mush, and then the FF show up to save him, and he's completely surly. Oh, oh, and at the end of it, which is great, because the number of times that Rich Buckler has had uh, in his run on the Fantastic Four, where someone comes up to Ben Grimm, and, you know, it riffs on that old Kirby thing of like, oh, hey, can you give me a souvenir? And of course... You know, Kirby came up, Lee and Kirby came up with good reasons or justifications for uh, the thing to like take some doodad or some trophy or like a lamppost and tie it around and give it to someone and leave them befuddled. And and here all he can do is crumple a beer can, you know, just to show this woman that he used to be strong. So I. So I love that sequence. As a kid, it just really, the, the you know, because I had, you know, you're 10, I'm 10 years old. It's not really, the, you couldn't make the melodrama, the more wide the melodrama was, the better, because that meant that I wouldn't miss anything, you know? So I just do. I love that scene. Like the stuff that ends up happening in Superman 2 a few years later, where like Clark Kent, it Superman becomes Clark Kent and gets his ass kicked in a, in that mm. bar like yeah. a you cannot tell me otherwise that they did not read this issue of the fantastic four and b even as a kid i was like yeah seen it you know what i mean like it really the <laughs> the pathos hit me here hardest and first even though it's i'm sure with adult eyes i'm like eh, it's not really a better scene but but it's great yeah so. I, I would say it's not a better scene and, and actually this scene i found more comedic than anything yeah, I I don't think it's meant uh, to be, but I can see why you no, would. No, it's yeah. it's it's definitely not meant to be. Yeah, but it's the my first thought honestly was like I don't feel like Roy Thomas or Rich Buckler have ever actually been to a bar in their lives. <laughs> it's just it all just feels like cliches from old films. Every, every single like from the visuals, mm-hmm. because I mean, what does the the guy who Wilbur, yes. the guy who starts the fight, Wilbur. Like, what? What does Wilbur look like? Not only the fact that he's called Wilbur, what yeah. does he actually look like? Yeah. It's astounding. Yeah, yeah. And and even the the Annabelle, the the woman who who hits on Ben and then causes trouble, looks yeah. like she's from the nineteen forties. Yes. It, it's just it, it's just it's a weird, funny scene. Like I I I'm I love the ten year old Jew got the pathos because I think that means the scene works. I think it's doing what it's supposed to. Well, if but you're ten. From, yeah, exactly. But well, I think it's meant to appeal to ten-year-olds, though, Jeff. Well, like, I think. I, 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 oh, I, I don't think, think. Do you think that it's designed to be that everyone else is supposed to find this a camp hoot? No, but I think that the target audience is is kids. To be perfectly honest with you. Interesting. It could be. Could be. I, I think the target audience for this entire year of Fantastic Four is kids. Hmm. I don't know. That's funny. That's funny because. I guess that would almost make sense. I mean, there's very much an awareness at some point, you know, actually several years earlier, like 71 or 72. I think there's a soapbox where Stan basically says like, hey, you know, these books have to Uh, work out. Comics aren't for kids. Comics are for kids. You know, it's kind of like the Silver Surfer got canceled because there just aren't because I wrote it for adults and there aren't enough adults supporting adult comics at this point i mean stan sadly can't really realize that he's really kind of writing a terrible comic book with silver surfer but that's 
I know, kind of beside the point. So this is the conclusion that they hit on. And so he says at one point, he's like, people keep asking us. It's like, we have to, we have to basically have this so that it works for kids and it works for adults. So I think it's meant to kind of work for adults too. I like, part of me is like, cause as a kid, I remember kind of digging the bigness of 160 through 163, but yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's like it's supposed to work for kids, and then the the extent to which it works for adults, they can sort of enjoy the campiness of it. I guess I don't know. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's funny. I'm just like, no, Graham, that's wrong. <laughs> but well, just but but I I'm not. I don't mean that as an insult. No, no, no. And I'm I don't take it as an insult either. And you know, let's put it this way: that might be it. Might be very true. It. it it's certainly I don't think that Jerry Conway was intending his FF to be for kids, but I think after that, and of course at this point we're two years you know, sorry, we're at least more than a year after Conway has split, it's kind of uh it's yeah, it's kind of at that point where Thomas is trying to maybe tell all ages FF stuff. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to well, think about it. One, one of the reasons I think that is also the rest of this plot mm -hmm. is uh, there's not a lot of subtext. Oh, that's not true. There's, there, and actually, no, I will stand by that. There's not a lot of subtext that you haven't already seen in 168. Mm -hmm. Because the rest of it, it is, guess what, everyone? Luke Cage turns against the Fantastic Four because he's being mind controlled by the puppet master. Right. The end. Right. You know, and that's and and it's revealed by Luke Cage lifting up a sofa and throwing it at Sue Storm and saying, "Got to kill, kill." Yeah. I mean, it's it's a kids comic. It's a kids story, and that's fine and it's great. Like, I think you can make more of an argument that one sixty three, one sixty three is not aimed at kids than you can these this storyline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wait, guard and the issue, or do you mean the Crusader stories aren't aren't? A case? No, no, I, I mean I mean guard and and uh, and, uh, and really I mean uh, the three different Earths for the yeah. That's the I was part of me was like that seems a little too I don't know convoluted for for sort of yeah, kid that, stuff yeah, or that, whatever. That's, but, that's, yeah, and that's my thinking. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, this one is again. There's just a weird like I enjoy these issues a lot. They're a breezy read, but like. It just part of me also feels that that Thomas is, I don't know, distracted or I mean, all of these issues are kind of subtext free. But I feel that that is Thomas is trying to do a breezier, lighter Fantastic Four. But I, I don't necessarily think that it's for kids. I think it's supposed to be for FF fans, you know, but. But Thomas is tired of, I think he feels that Conway had exhausted the streak of self-important pathos that was also an element of the FF in a way. Like, And he's trying to move it back to bigger, like kind of alternating between like big stories with like a light, almost art, you know, campy handling or, you know, just even smaller stories. You know, I just, I think that, and this is, it's a, it's the big stuff is what's happening for Ben. It feels like big stuff for him. And again, in a sort of almost DC silver age thing, the way that he is tr handling 
badly, the idea that he is being replaced, you know, is kind of the, that, that is such a, you know, it seems like every other issue of a Silver Age DC book in the Mark Weisinger era, but it's being handled very differently here. But like, I mean, the thing that's weird is like Luke Cage is a non-character in these issues, which is something that I don't remember as a kid. And going back and rereading, I'm like, oh, he is kind of utterly one dimensional. He's there on the team. He's, you know, I'm punching robots. It's like, you know, Ben Grimm's trying to go, you know, bait him. And most of the time it doesn't work. Yeah. And he's, he's not being goaded, which is great. He's a decent character, but he's absolutely paper thin. And then when he's taken control of, sometimes I just feel like some of that is just Thomas's whole, um, Thomas being overly cautious because there is a way in which Luke basically running around trying to, you know, kill the kill Sue storm and then, you know, destroying the lab in a rage and then running off with the fantastic car. And then Alicia, like there's something that's that it's, Again, it plays with a lot of weird, like, oh, you can't, you can't trust the black guy, you know. There's yeah, well, a lot but, of you cannot trust the also, black guy in this. He, he and maybe with that plot, it's why Luke has no discernible personality yeah. because Luke's personality, especially at that point, was completely black exploitation cliche. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Like, if this was the same Luke Cage that was appearing in his own comic, you would have this character complaining that you know you can't shock him that jive. Yes. Saying right. sweet Christmas and then turning on the team. Yeah. You know, and that seems a really dangerous thing to do when you have A, the thing not trusting him to begin with. Yeah. And B, him then turning on the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you really run the risk of, of being, hey, racists. Well, it, it, Ben's it is... got your back and he's right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the weird, the really weird, there's something that's kind of race baity about these three issues in a way that I don't like thinking about uh, because, but it, and it's all entirely visual. Thomas continually undercuts it in the dialogue at every opportunity from having Luke just really be kind of a, a stand up patient guy. And when he does turn into the couch throwing, I must kill, kill dude. He it is so, it's so so underlined that he's being mind controlled at that point from that point on. So Thomas well, like is because he's, he no longer talks like himself. Like he's literally, I must kill, kill. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, and he even says, like, get out of my brain, must control it. No, I can't. And if you didn't see any of that happening inside Luke, you know, then the rest of this might seem like, uh, what the fuck is going on? But it, Honestly, from that very first page, the whole point is like, who the fuck is controlling Luke Cage, you know? And uh, I guess at that point, so he like gets away in the fantastic car. I guess he didn't take Alicia. Do you want to see the talk about the reveal of Ben finding the seeing the new replacement Um, or no? Uh, It's 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 like. It's kind of annoying, to be perfectly honest. It's funny in that... So the, the reveal is that uh, after Luke turns on the team, he runs away with Fantastic Car and 
Reed says to Ben, he was only a temporary replacement. He was always meant to be a temporary replacement. Do you want to meet the person who's really going to replace you in the team? Yeah. Look in that room. He looks in that room and it's the thing. Yeah. And then 170 reveals it's the thing exoskeleton that he's supposed to wear. Yes. The end of 170 is really funny because A, they're like, it's a thing. How? What? You know, five issues after you've just seen another thing. Oh, well, like, okay. And, and, they, and they never really go. It's the Reed Richards thing. Well, they, they it, don't... It's the next issue they do. Yes. Well, and that's it. I think that Thomas thinks that... Oh, by the way, you did say the end of 170. I know you meant the end of 169, but... In I case, did. In case listeners get confused. Um, so this is it. The, the fact that uh, 169 ends with, think you've got this all figured out, don't you, Fantastophile? Then, right or wrong, be on hand for our next slam bang issue where the fabulous FF face a sky full of fear. Till then, keep on guessing here. And so Thomas clearly knows the think you know what's going on. He feels that he has properly seeded this and everyone's thinking, oh, it's the Reed Richards thing. And that is that's the very first words out of Roy Thomas's, you know, the the script on Sky Full of Fear, Ben Grimm is just like, oh, you, yeah, you know, I wasn't the only freaking one in the freaking universe and your big brain brother-in-law has got the other one to take my place, which I think is, you know, again, and I have to say, as a kid, maybe I was an inattentive 10-year-old, <coughs> I never figured that out. I never tried to piece that together at no point because I was buying these issues in real time. I had issues 160 through 163. It never occurred to me for one single second that this was going to be the Reed Richards thing, which is probably dumb on my part. It really was. But part of me was like, no, no, no. Because he's wearing the blue trunks. Like it's not like it. This, the visual signifier isn't right, which is, mm-hmm. you know, like I just somehow knew it wasn't that. And instead, we get to see, you know, Ben rant, rant and rave and be wrong because he's being given his awesome little exosuit, which as a kid, I was kind of fond of. Uh, well, I, I'm still fond of it. I think it's a, I, I think it's a really smart. Yeah. If, it's a really smart solution if one that like doesn't really make a lot of sense if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the exoskeleton is the same size as Ben. Right. Like, there's a shot where you see Ben pointing to, like, talking to the exoskeleton, and the thing, like, the helmet is literally the same size as his head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very but, funny. But, but, but that aside, it's, it's, a, it's a graceful solution, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and, the... and also one that allows for the illusion that this is permanent. I... I love the ending of this issue, the very last page and where it looks like it's going to go. Um, and uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. But yeah, no, it's kind of kind of a in a way. Part of me is the like you said, it's elegant. It makes you think it's going to stick. And there's even a way in which you can see. I feel that, again, Thomas is, if nothing else, there's certain things in the FF that he is ready to retire and a degree of Ben Grimm's self-pity, the, the manor monster stuff is something that he's 
just doesn't have any patience for. I think he's like, it's been done. It's been done to the death. There's no way that we're going to have, you know, we actually have someone who can now be Ben Grimm and he can be the thing whenever he wants. And that means that he can marry Alicia and he can get married, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's what's nice is this three issue storyline, especially the previous two issues before they really get into the Lucas turned against the team. What's going on? Have shown that Ben wants to be the thing. Yeah. Right. And, exactly. and so, you know, not that it will because other writers will return to this time and time again, mm-hmm. but this storyline at least gives the illusion of, Oh, we've actually finished that story. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we finally closed the loop on this. Yes, exactly. Like ben, Ben no longer considers himself a monster when he's the thing. He wants to be the thing. This is who he is now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the the exoskeleton and the fact that it's, it's there's a lot of potential here that is never really fully explored. I love, for example, in the start of 170, that Reed, uh, the Ben can't control the exoskeleton properly. Like yeah. he's stronger than he thinks he is. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. shows up a couple of times. And that's a funny gag that you keep playing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and as it is, it kind of moves away from that super quickly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there's, there's potential there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I, and so the idea of, oh, you could have a thing who is not, the, who is the same thing mm-hmm. that you've always had. But also is not the same thing that you've always had. Mm-hmm. Because we've, we've, we've finished off that character arc and left them in a much better place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it's it's a really nice, graceful place to to put the character. Yeah, and there are times where I wish, in a way, that when Thomas left the book, that Steve Englehart had taken over. You know, I mean, Englehart had left Marvel. I'm pretty sure by that point. But I, you know, someone but, but who would have been he, he would have moved it forward. Like he, he would yeah. have back his thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He wouldn't have moved it toward so quickly to the reset, which is a shame. So we get to see the old fantastic car, uh, the flying bathtub uh, back in action, which is kind of also wonderful to see as Reed and Ben take off. I don't know. Are they are they heading off to chase Alicia or because Alicia has disappeared and we get to find out that she has realized uh, by Luke Cage's behavior that the person behind um, Luke's uh, manipulation is the puppet master, which she which, comes uh, to visit in prison. Yes. And I love that. I love that she's just very cool and calm and collected. And she's like, oh, he's being mind controlled. Of course, it's, it's my dad. Of yeah. course, it's the puppet master. Yeah. Um, I, and I love that she just puts that together and goes and takes care of it. Yeah. I, th- I think this is something that I do want to say, and I should have said it earlier, but I think this is a, is a good point, is you and I have both carped on Roy Thomas, Roy Thomas's treatment of women uh, in previous comics, and especially Roy Thomas's weirdo, like, underlining of how important and liberated women are in a way that just seems like really embarrassing and tacky. And I do want to say that the the that he has very in a very quiet way. Well, I mean, you know, he levels up Sue storm relatively early in the crusader issues. And you get to see that at work where she is essentially holding off both the Hulk and the thing. And in many cases, like saving members of the team and doing multiple things at, at once. And here with Alicia, you actually get to see Alicia act with 
a lot more agency and rationality than we've seen her in most parts where she's sort of the the crying boo-hoo woman you know mm -hmm. her handling and particularly the sequence with her where it's her fa you know her father her stepdaughter huh interesting uh you know she she basically um figures out that it's him and even though she loves him she's very much like he is fucking people up you've got exactly. to find yeah yeah she, she's basically like you know even though i love you you have to cut the shit out yeah exactly exactly so uh which which does lead to a nice little moment because you end up with a very quick sort of dramatic wrap up it's very very quick which involves um Reed and uh, I'm sorry, Ben and uh, Luke Cage slugging it out on top of uh, a, an almost out of control fantastic car while Reed tries to figure out how to save uh, Alicia and actually everyone involved because he's well aware that Ben will not be paying attention to anyone's safety while he's busy slugging people. So, um, and so ultimately, what ends up happening is the Luke Cage puppet that 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 uh the puppet master has um is basically torn from his hands and there's a great moment where the puppet master has to make a choice between grabbing the luke cage puppet or trying to save uh alicia who's also tumbling out of the car and the puppet master chooses alicia which is it's a nice moment all the more so because of course he ends up being caught and uh he is basically crying tears of rage at the at the end of the issue and while alicia weeps next to him so it's uh it's kind of kind of nice and also particularly nice is that the you see the epilogue yes where ben and, and alicia are flying back and ben is as sensitive as ben is allowed to be in comics at this time i guess mm-hmm where he basically is like, I understand you're really upset because he's your stepdad and, and this, you know, and he's a, a villain and this has got to be really rough on you. Like, that's that's horrible. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. But then we see him, and this is what you're talking about before, essentially say, wait, this this is all working out for me. Right. <laughs> like, I can be human and I can be the thing. I can move on with my life. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's time for me to propose to Alicia. Yeah, I I do love. He actually says, "I'll still still be able to be the thing with enough self respect again to cope with a lady who's got more brains and talent and beauty than a whole stage full of Miss Universe types." And then, yeah, maybe then. Ben Grimm edition. <laughs> exactly. If she'll still have me, it'll be time for Ben Grimm to walk down that well known aisle. And of course. And it's a, it's actually a really kind of gorgeous panel of of Ben too. Like it is, it's a, it's a really nice. Yeah. Is this, is this Perez by this point? It's per, it's Perez. It's it is. It's Perez, Perez again. Point, yeah. yeah, it's Perez and Senate giving a surprisingly pensive Ben Grimm. You know, and of course, then Thomas. You know, it says next dish, but first a word from our golden gorilla exclamation point, which is, I'm like, again, Thomas is like, Oh yeah, here's a nice little moment of reflection. And here's some incredibly goofy shit that's coming up next. Like Thomas. Yeah. I, I, there's by this point, this story is, has the right balance. Mm -hmm. 
It really does. And, and, and there's something about that. There's something about seemingly moving Ben forward. Yeah. Ending with that moment of introspection. Actually, a dual moment of introspection because Ben is also introspective about what's going on with Alicia. He's right. no longer wrapped up in his own drama. That's right. He's able to recognize hers, but he is also, now we can move on. And then it ends with this goofy, uh, but first I work from our golden gorilla. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're like, oh, this this is this is a fun comic. Yeah, it really and, is. And it's not been, it's not been for a very long time, but you know, for this, the, these run of 11 issues, it's especially not been. Yeah, I don't know. Nope. It's had fun bits. It, like you but said, it's, it's there's not really, like, it's, it's everything up until this three parter has been very uneven. Yeah. Oh, it's super uneven. Like you said, there's a balance. There's a tone here that I think is kind of found in these three issues, which is weird because they are a, they're so fast and breezy and kind of disposable. And like I said, like Luke Cage has, you know, no real personality to speak of controlled or not controlled. You know, he, he's just a human punching plot device. Uh, and yet, and yet, yeah, the tone is there. It's kind of like, oh, these, this is, this is the fun element of Marvel comics that I remember. And, but also with a certain amount of emotional efficiency, it's, you know, they, they were kind of great. I remember when you emailed me earlier, you were kind of like, holy shit, these were one uneven batch of issues. And I was like, yeah, but I kind of, they were not, they, it was, it was an entirely pleasant read for me. You know, I mean, they weren't necessarily good comics, but, but well, I really I, didn't I, have any sort of, um, I had, I had, as I said, the, this very negative reaction to the first four issues, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. really negative. But then upon rereading, I was like, oh, this is completely solid stuff. There's really interesting stuff in here. It doesn't come together, but there, there are really interesting ideas and there's some really nice moments. Yeah. The cliffhanger of, of 160 is a really nice moment. Mm -hmm. Agreed. There's um, lots of nice moments. They're just not particularly good stories. Uh, and the thing that you know, but it is worth remembering the stuff that that has come before it. Just immediately before it, you know, in the 150s, is really pretty dire muck by comparison. So. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's a book. It is as odd as it, if you told me this on Monday when I was doing my first read through of these issues. Mm -hmm. This is a book on an upswing. Mm -hmm. I I would not have I I would not have believed you. Yeah. Uh, but it but it is mm -hmm. at this point. I think this is actually a book on an upswing. Yeah. And uh, so these are the issues you grew up with. Yes. So do you remember? Does this book continue to be an upswing? Because I remember that I have read when I was a kid uh, mm -hmm. back issues of definitely one seventy five. Mm -hmm. I, and and around then, like 177, I'm looking at the covers. Yeah. I've definitely read 175, 177, 179, mm -hmm. uh, and 181 from this period. And maybe because I was a kid that was raised in the burn Fantastic Four, mm -hmm. I remember finding them really rough reads. Uh, I... I be I believe that I actually would say that the fun continues all the way up to one seventy six, maybe even up to because I'm trying to think my my memory's bad, but 
Um, you know, there, there's, I enjoyed the, the totally weirdo, again, King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, Golden Gorilla tribute stuff. Uh, there's the whole Galactus Counter Earth storyline, uh, which I, 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 I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the upswing persists up until, to me, I want to say 180, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe as late as 183, 184, maybe. I don't know. We'll have, we'll have to see. Cause again, my, my memory's a little, cause there's bits that I love about this stuff with the brute. But yeah, I would have to say by the time 184 shows up, even with George Perez doing the art, I, I feel like it starts to kind of crap up again. Um, and well, so, I say okay, that. So let, yeah. let's, so for the next, next run, like let's mm-hmm. do 171 through 173. Let's, let's do this next batch of, of, uh, of good stuff, but also that's a, that gets into a fairly extended storyline. That's true. 171 through 183? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that sounds fabulous. Because I, that, that does get into a, a, I mean, you, it includes the Brute storyline. And the yeah. Brute storyline is is nuts. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, exactly. It, it really is yeah. wacky. Yeah. It's um, wacky, but again, since I haven't read it since a, as a kid, I remember a lot of this stuff is really working for me. So, so be curious to see how much it does again, you know. Because I I don't know it's we, we didn't talk about it much uh, but like that first issue with Luke Cage on the cover uh, issue what one sixty seven one sixty eight um, one sixty eight is so powerful to me I can totally remember the seven eleven that I bought it in and how excited I was to kind of have it because it just seemed to have everything in it in this weird way um, you know. I, and 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 so it was kind of fun to reread it and be like, God damn, I'm st- still enjoying this. I really there must be something wrong with me. So <laughs> so I look forward to seeing how uh, off I am or on I am when we when we visit this next batch of, of issues. Well, we'll see. I remember, like I said, th- there being some really rough stuff in there, but I also yeah. think I'm more in tune with what Thomas is doing than I was back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, excited. Yeah. <laughs> like the wrong way of putting it, but right. I am, I'm looking forward to this next batch of issues, which I'm not sure I could have said for a while in this. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, see, I was looking forward to this batch. I, as you may recall, I was like, I think this is when the good stuff starts, you know, with good in quotes, but, uh, but of course, I've—I am apparently more generous because I, there were parts in the Conway stuff where I'm like, I think we're gonna like this, Graham. And then afterwards, I was like, Oh God, that was wow! What a train wreck! So yeah, <laughs> you were just excited. Is all it is. <laughs> Anywho, uh, Graham, do you want to start wrapping this up, shall we? Sure, let's wrap it up, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Baxter Building. This episode of the Baxter Building is brought to you by Squarespace and by Audible.com. Not really, uh, but it is brought to you uh, by Patreon. This is a Patreon-supported podcast, and in particular, Baxter Building is in existence purely because of the Patreon uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. 
And because I'm mentioning the Patreon and I'm starting with the Patreon, Jeff's up earlier than he thinks. Jeff? Oh, yeah. Um, thank you, all the wonderful people on Patreon who make this possible, including the kind crew of the American Ninth Art Studios and Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, who did not try to destroy three Earths in order to power her own dimension, but instead continues to support us as we produce the uh, Baxter Building podcast, which was a stretch goal available on Patreon that uh, we now do because we got that level of support. God bless you all. And, uh, you know, the other episodes of Wait What that we do, as well as the writing that we do over at our fine website. We are also on that fine website. That fine website is waitwhatpodcast.com. Uh, where you'll find written notes to support the Baxter Buildings, to support the Wait What episodes. Also, written posts from Matt Terrell, who gets top billing because he's kept it up recently and I've not and you've not. Uh, oh, as yeah. well as me and Jeff, occasionally, sometimes, when we get our acts together. It's been a rough few weeks, people. That's all I'm saying. I'm very sorry. I actually do uh, an update on my DC Rebirth. Uh, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Things. So, so that would be coming. And it might even be up by the time this episode goes live. We'll see, because San Diego Comic-Con is between now and then. Mm-hmm. Maybe not then. We'll see how that goes. Um, we're also going to Tumblr. Waitwhatpods.tumblr.com is where you will find just random pieces of comic ephemera. Mm-hmm. It's occasionally some interesting things. Jeff, I hope you enjoyed the panels from uh, Alan Moore's Monster from 1983 or 84. I did enjoy those. there this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, Misty, the uh, 1980s girls comic. From I can't wait for the reprint the of that. Oh, my God. Which is it's nuts. It's crazy stuff. Yeah. The, we are also on Twitter. At Wait What Podcast is where you will find us on Twitter. Jeff's on Twitter solo at LazyBastid, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I'm on Twitter at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. This episode is a week late in terms of our traditional schedule because of this Comic-Con. We're recording it ahead of time. It will be going up afterwards. That is entirely because I have to edit it and I also have to go to Comic-Con at the same time. Sorry, you guys. Uh, Also, this is the last episode for a while recorded in the Portland office of Wait What? Because when you hear this, the Portland office of Wait What? is going to be lifted and is going to be insane. So we'll see how that goes next time we end up having a recording of Wait What, which will be two weeks for us, but a week as you listen to this, dear listeners. Unless it's not, we'll see, because of course, in order for it to of course, happen. Yeah. happen yes. Oh, yes, things. Yeah, watch watch the website for an update when the next episode is. <laughs> because there's also, there's other travel plans happening. So That's right. Yeah, things are going to be nuts for a while. Uh, it's the summer of 2016, which I think is going in every other aspect of 2016, which is to say, wow. Yeah, holy <laughs> crap. For sure. Um, next Factor Building is going to be in a month, though, no matter yes. what. And we're going to be doing 171 through 183. Yes, so join us, won't you? Um, oh, wait, I guess actually maybe I'll move into the full... I'm such a jerk. I can't. I can't do anything <laughs> right not, when it comes to actually closure. Yeah, the, I know. The, I could have done it right. Your tagline. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So join us next time uh, in the lobby of the Baxter Building.